Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Guilt, a powerful emotion triggered when we believe we have compromised a law, rule or moral code of our society or own standards, and in turn, accept responsibility for that violation. Guilt guides our actions, our beliefs and our opinions. It protects us, binds us and shapes our lives. But just like a lie, being fueled by the heart and not the head, guilt can be subjective. So no matter what part a person has played in that violation, with their perceived level of guilt defined by their own emotional barometer, whatever the truth, blame can be shifted, roles twisted and reality distorted, to the point where the innocent feel truly responsible and the guilty remain blameless. Being complicit in the failure of his wife's abortion, her untimely death and her unlawful burial Having destroyed evidence, lied and fled, and deeply missing his baby daughter, 24-year-old Timothy John Evans walked into Merthervale Police Station and made a confession. But with his statement littered with lies, his own words had protected the real culprit and condemned himself to death. Some of what follows is based on the killer's own memories and perspectives. So what part of this story is true is up to you. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. And I present to you part five of the full, true and untold story of the other side of Ten Rillington Place. Today, I'm standing on Bartle Road W11, a residential side street just off St Mark's Road in Ladbroke Grove. To my right is a long line of modern four-storey brown brick terraced houses. To my left are several lock-ups under the arches of the overhead tube line. Behind is the ominous shadow of the Grenfell Tower. And in front, just like it was in the 1940s, is a garage and a petrol station. Named after the Bartle James Ironworks, originally situated at its bottom end, Bartle Road was built in 1979 
after the 1970s slum clearances saw many derelict Victorian houses demolished. Being new, this street is filled with blue plaques, which expose fascinating tidbits about semi-famous people who were once residents. Like at number 7 Bruce Grove in Tottenham, where a plaque on the home of the famed meteorologist proudly lists him as Luke Howard, namer of clouds. At 48 Welbeck Street, where Thomas Young is hailed simply as man of science. And at number 6 Wimpole Street, where noted surgeon Sir Frederick Treves lived. And yet, the plaque fails to mention that at that time, in that house, his lodger was none other than Joseph Carey Merrick, infamously known as the Elephant Man. Some streets take pride in their history, whereas Bartle Road does not, and for good reason. As after the last resident left in 1971, and prior to its demolition, the street on which Bartle Road now stands was a dark and dreary dead end called Rushton Close, which had been hastily renamed to disguise its infamous horrors, as this was originally Rillington Place. And although a few remnants of Reg Christie's beloved garden still exist at numbers 26 and 29 St Andrew's Square, just one street behind, between numbers 8 and 10 Bartle Road, there's an odd break in the terraced houses. As where number 10 Rillington Place once stood, sits a memorial garden, with no sign, no plaque and no shrine. As it was here, on the 2nd of December 1949, in the back garden of 10 Rillington Place, that the police would discover the decomposing bodies of two females. On Wednesday the 30th of November 1949, at 6pm, Detective Inspector George Jennings and Detective Sergeant James Black of Notting Hill Police Station searched the second floor flat at 10 Rillington Place. As expected, it was empty. No furniture, no clothes, no people. Just two suitcases, a pram and a high chair, left in the safekeeping of the Christie's. Two hours after dusk, with the street full of giggling kids, gossiping neighbours, and with Reg eagerly watching from the doorway, outside of the ground floor bay window of 10 Rillington Place, the police pried up a cast iron manhole cover and armed with flashlights, they peered inside, into the sewer. At 9pm, Detective Constable Evans commenced his interview of Timothy John Evans in Merthervale Police Station, and having heard back from the Notting Hill Police, he confronted Tim with what they had found down the drain. Nothing. The body of Beryl Evans wasn't there. And as Tim the Terrible Liar indignantly replied, Well, I put her there. Being incapable of sustaining the story, as his lies unraveled, the detective probed Tim further. Is it a manhole? I expect so. Who helped you lift it? I did it myself. But when faced with the stark reality that, Impossible. It took three officers to lift the cover off, 
As he began to realize that he was digging his own grave, for the first time in a long while, Tim began to tell the truth. At 9.10pm, just four hours after his first confession, began the second confession of Timothy John Evans. And this is the nearest we'll ever get to the truth. On the evening of Tuesday the 8th of November 1949, having finished his shift as a van driver, Tim returned home to Rillington Place. As he pushed open the dark wooden door, beyond the oddly subdued greeting of Judy, at the far end of the drab grey hallway stood Reg, his bald head bowed, his hands behind his back. Eagerly Tim asked, Will? But Reg didn't reply. Instead, taking a lengthy breath, he sighed and softly uttered, Go on upstairs, Tim. I'll follow you up. And as they ascended the stairs in silence, the only sounds heard were the slow creak of wood and a soft squeak of Reggie's plimsolls. Inside, the second floor flat was dark and empty. Nothing seemed out of place, and with the baby asleep in her cot, all that was missing was Beryl. So Tim asked again, Will? But this time, Reggie's face said it all. It's bad news, Tim. It didn't work. With the curtains drawn and the lights out, the bedroom was in darkness. But hearing his baby grizzling after a long nap, Geraldine's gurgling was reassuring as he lit the gas lamp. Bathing the pokey room in a shadowy yellow flicker, Tim turned to see the small familiar shape of his wife, in bed, a quilt from her feet to her chin. Beryl, he gently cooed to his sickly wife, but she didn't reply. Tim stroked her hand, thinking she was sleeping, but with the soft warmth of her delicate fingers, replaced by five frozen and rigid digits, Tim gulped, as he now knew that Beryl was dead. It was her stomach. Septic poisoning, we call it, from all those pills she was taking. Seeing his dead wife through a blur of tears, Tim tried to ask why her face was bloodied, but as his lips stuttered, there was no way that this feeble fantasist with a childlike brain could compete with his superior intellect. And as Reg reiterated, one in seven women die, I said. If only you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done it without any risk. He led Tim to the kitchen and away from the precisely positioned quilt, which disguised the bruise around Beryl's neck. And more importantly, Reg's guilt. As Tim's world collapsed, Reg stood beside him, offering his fatherly advice and a few home comforts. And as Reg brewed a tea on the hob, Tim cuddled Geraldine by the warmth of the fire. We have to go to the police, Tim pleaded. But being ready with his retort, Reg replied, The police? And tell them what? Reg knew how to bait him. It wasn't difficult, as being such a simple lad, he was easily duped. And yet, without any hint of irony, 
Tim replied, I'll tell them the truth. A word which sounded strange as it spewed out of his mouth. Oh, Tim, who do you think the police will suspect? And it was true. As a heavy drinker with a fiery temper, a string of bad debts and a criminal record, it was well known from Ladbroke Grove to Merthyr Vale that Tim was a terrible liar. My father's an Italian count. I need a loan as my baby's gravely ill. It's a managerial job at the Havilland. And with their regular rows, I'll bloody do you in, I will. witnessed by every resident in Rillington Place, I'll push you through the bloody window. The most violent having occurred just two months earlier. I'll smash it up. I'll run her over in my van. They'll think he killed her during one of your fights. It's best that we make it look like she went away on a holiday. And as a Catholic, although the thought of hiding Beryl's body and depriving her of a church service, a burial and a grave made him physically sick, well, that's the only thing we can do. Reg fired back with the clincher, which would prey on the simple boy's guilt. Otherwise, I'll get into trouble with the police. You wouldn't want that, would you? And in three short words, No, Mr. Christie. Reg took complete control of Tim. Instructed to look after the baby, having changed her nappy, Tim made her a cup of tea and a boiled egg. Being just 14 months old, as Geraldine hugged her stuffed rabbit and her daddy dangled a set of dandy jinglers, hoping to distract her, she was blissfully unaware that her mum was dead. But from the bedroom, with a dull thump, Reg dragged her dead mother's corpse. With each heave and pull, Reg wheezed and panted as he struggled to haul the lifeless body into the landing. She was only seven and a half stone, but being just a little fella himself, whose back played merry hell and whose dicky tummy often left him bog-bound, Beryl's body was a dead weight. Here, give us a hand, lad, Reg huffed, and dutifully, Tim did. Clutching her chilly ankles, as they carried her cadaver down to the currently vacant first-floor flat of Mr Kitchener, with Reg's arms flat over her chest, rocking her blue woolen jacket right up to her neck, the strangulation scar was hidden. There, Beryl's body was dumped on the hard wooden floor, slumped in a crumpled heap like a bag of old rags. It didn't seem real. His wife was dead and he was to blame. But this wasn't one of Tim's fanciful tales, told to his pals over a few pints. This was reality, something Tim knew nothing about. Through stuttering sobs, Tim stammered, So, where will you put her? Tim didn't want to know, but he knew he had to know. And although Reg's reply was oddly clinical and almost inhuman, I'll dispose of it down the drain. Tim said nothing. He just nodded, knowing Reg was right. You better go to bed now and leave the rest to me, Reg said. And as he handed the distraught boy the wedding ring he'd yanked off her stiff finger, There you are, lad. 
sell it. Over the next few days, in a dizzy state of exhaustion and confusion, Tim would do whatever Reg said. Mr. Christie said, the best thing you can do is to disappear. Get out of London somewhere. So I just said, all right. The next day, I woke up, fed and changed the baby, and I put her in a cot. I saw Christy before I went to work, and he told me that he would feed the baby during the day. I wanted to take the baby to my mother, but he said not to, as it would cause suspicion. He told me that he knew a young couple in East Acton who would look after her. That evening, Christy told me they'd be here in the morning to take the baby and said to pack up some clothes for her, which I did. It consisted of two large suitcases full of baby clothes, her favourite stuffed rabbit, a rag doll, and a set of dandy jinglers, as well as a pram and a high chair, which Reg promised to drop round to the couple later in the week. Being there last night together, as Tim sobbed by the warmth of the kitchen fire, he kissed and cuddled his baby daughter. Her skin was as soft as marshmallows, her rosy cheeks as bright as the pink woolen coat that she wore, and her smell was a familiar mix of milk and talc. And truly believing that he was doing the best for his baby, he hoped that someday he would see her again. Only he wouldn't. Under Reg's instructions, over the next four days, Tim erased his and his family's existence. He quit his job at Lancaster Food Products, told his mother that his wife and child had gone on holiday to Brighton, sold his furniture to Robert Hookway for £40, including a three-piece oak suite, a kitchen table, a folding chair, a six-foot bed and even the lino off the floor. And having sliced up his wife's clothes and the quilt into strips, two anonymous bundles of assorted cloth were handed to the local rag merchant. By 1pm, on Monday the 14th of November, the second floor flat was bare and hollow. There was no hint that a family once lived there, no clue as to where they had gone, and no evidence that a murder had taken place. And with no reason to stay, Tim closed the door, never to return to Tenrillington Place. Christy asked me where I was going to go. I said, I didn't know. I then got my suitcase and took it up to Paddington and caught the 5 to 1 train to Cardiff. I got to Merthervale about 20 to 7 in the morning. I went to Mount Pleasant and I've been there ever since. Being back in his hometown of Merthervale, staying with his Uncle Con and Auntie Vi at 93 Mount Pleasant, a few doors down from where he was born, and being surrounded by the lush green valleys, the soft bleat of sheep, and the soothing trickle of the River Taff, everything felt reassuring and safe. But for the next two weeks, Tim wouldn't sleep. As every night he silently wept, his heart breaking for every day that he didn't see his baby daughter, his mind flashing with horrifying images of his dead wife, and his soul crushed by the thought of her body dumped in a rat-infested sewer. 
and with Reg Christie no longer here to guide him, the feeble little lies of Timothy Evans started to unravel. With very little making sense, and Tim struggling to remember which lie he had told to who, such as why he was in Wales, how long he was staying, why Beryl had walked out on him, why she had gone to stay with her father in Brighton, why she had left Geraldine with Thomasina, and why did he have his wife's wedding ring in his jacket pocket? With Tim growing ever more angry and evasive whenever Beryl was mentioned, Uncle Con telegrammed his mum. This was her reply. From Thomasina Probert to Cornelius and Violet Lynch. Dear brother and sister, Well, Vi, I don't know what lies Tim has told you down there. I know nothing about them, as I've not seen him for three weeks, and I've not seen Bella and the baby for about a month. Tim came to tell me that Bella and the baby had gone to Brighton to see her father for a holiday. That is all I know about them. Ask Tim what he has done with all the rented furniture in his flat. You can tell him from me. I never want to see him again as long as I live. Shortly before this letter arrived, Uncle Con received a telegram from Beryl's father. In it he confirmed that he had not seen his daughter or the baby for almost a year. And in that, Tim's lies collapsed. On Wednesday the 30th of November 1949, in Merthyrvale Police Station, Tim made his first statement. I want to give myself up. I have disposed of my wife, claiming she had died, having taken some tablets. A few hours later, with the drain checked, Beryl missing, and no body found, Tim retracted his first statement and made a second. The only thing that's not true is the part about meeting the man in the cafe and disposing of my wife's body. All the rest is true. I said it to protect a man called Christie. But when interviewed, the ex-special constable stated, I can't understand why Evans should make any accusations against me, as I have been really good to him in a lot of ways. It is very well known, locally, that he is a liar. And my wife and I have expressed the opinion that we think he is a little bit mental. On Friday the 2nd of November 1949, as Tim was transported to Notting Hill Police Station, a full search was conducted at Tenrillington Place. And with Tim having stripped the flat bare, sold the furniture, cut up the clothes in the quilt, told conflicting stories, sold his wife's wedding ring, and left the Christie's with a high chair, a pram, and two suitcases full of baby clothes to be delivered to a nice young couple in East Acton, who neither Reg nor Ethel had ever heard of. Everything looked suspicious. And then, at 11.50am, in the recently repaired wash house in the back garden of Tenrillington Place, having pulled aside a stash of wooden slats left by the builders for the tenants to use as firewood, Detective Inspector Jennings and Detective Sergeant Black found what they thought 
was a large bag of old rotten laundry, stuffed under the porcelain sink and wedged against the brick wall. I'll bloody do you in, I will! Being two foot high, deep and wide, and weighing roughly seven and a half stone, as they dragged the hefty green bundle out onto the cold stone floor, the sack was dense and lumpy, with an ominous fetid stench. And having snipped the length of clothesline, used to keep the green tablecloth tied, as it parted aside, they spied some clothes. A blue woolen jacket, a spotted cotton blouse, and a black skirt. I'll push you through the bloody window! Inside lay the decomposing body of Beryl Evans. Bent double, her knees tucked up to her chin, her breasts, thighs and genitals exposed. With her upper lip, chin and right eye bloodied and swollen, the pathologist concluded that she had been the victim of an assault. With large fatty maggots having gnawed into her mouth and left breast, it was determined that she had been dead for at least three weeks. And with a series of deep abrasions to her throat, it was irrefutable that Beryl had been strangled. I'll smash it up! I'll run over in my van! Conducted by Dr. Robert Teer, the post-mortem confirmed that with a six-and-a-half-inch male fetus found deceased in her uterus, at the time of her death, Beryl was 16 weeks pregnant. With no cuts or tears, it was clear that no abortion had taken place. And with deep bruising to her inner thighs, and with her parovarium ruptured, at some point before or after her death, Beryl had either been viciously kicked in the genitals, violated with a finger, or violently raped. But behind the wooden door to the wash house, crudely covered in timber slats and cruelly dumped on the dirty floor, police found a second body. Smaller, younger, and still dressed in a pink woolen coat, a flannel frock, a white undervest, and a white cotton nappy. Her tiny lifeless body was bloated and swollen, and with her lungs collapsed, her voice box crushed, and a man's blue tie with a red stripe, wound with sadistic tightness, which embedded an inch deep into her soft neck, just like her mum beside her, 14-month-old Geraldine Evans had been strangled to death. At 9.45pm on Friday the 2nd of December 1949, in Notting Hill Police Station, 24-year-old Timothy John Evans was shown two piles of dirty clothes by Detective Inspector Jennings. One being worn by Beryl with the green tablecloth which bound her body and the other a set of pink and white baby clothes as worn by Geraldine and on top was the thin striped tie which had ended her life. Informed that both bodies were found in the wash house at the back of 10 Rillington Place Detective Inspector Jennings stated, I have reason to believe that you are responsible for these deaths. Is that correct? To which, being exhausted, broken and crippled with guilt, Tim simply replied, Yes, 
as an emotional and exhausted boy with a low IQ and the mental age of a child. Having lost his grip on reality, that night, Tim would make his third statement to the police, in which he confessed, She was incurring one debt after another, and I couldn't stand it any longer. So I strangled her with a piece of rope. Then I took her to the wash house after midnight. On Thursday evening, I come home and I strangled my baby in the bedroom with my tie. And having signed his name, confirming that the statement was accurate and true, with a guilty sigh, Tim stated, It's a great relief to get it off my chest. I feel better already. On the 8th of December 1949, Beryl Suzanne Evans was buried in a simple coffin at Gunnersbury Cemetery. It was lined with flannel, padded with soft pillows, and between her legs, draped in a lace shroud, lay her baby daughter, Geraldine. And as her husband was arrested for the murders of his wife and child, Ridge Christie went back to his home and his wife at 10 Rillington Place. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you enjoyed parts one to five of this 10-part series, part six of The Other Side of 10 Rillington Place continues next Thursday. And if you're a murky miler, stay tuned for some jolly japes, giggles, and general shenanigans after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week, which are Evidence Locker, and Great Lakes True Crime. The Evidence Locker is a weekly podcast about international true crime. Made by hardcore true crime fans, it's somewhat grungy. Join us as we explore the dark corners of the globe. We've covered cases from Sweden, Brazil, Australia, and the US, to mention a few. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Steve from Great Lakes True Crime. We tell stories from Ohio and the rest of the Lower Great Lakes region. Give us a listen on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for Great Lakes True Crime. A big thank you to this week's fabulous Patreon supporters who very generous subscriptions to Murder Mile keeps the podcast chugging along, puts coal in my fire, cake in my belly, and a little tipple to keep out the cold. So a big thank you to Ryan Crump, Rianne Burgess, Michael Schlepp, Hayley Grocott, and Roger Remy. You're all truly amazing. And a big thank you to all of you who listen to Murder Mile, as with no listeners, Murder Mile would be nothing. So thank you. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. It's that time of the year. 
Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's extra mile o'clock, extra mile o'clock, extra mile o'clock, extra mile o'clock. Hey, don't know whether that might take off as a song, maybe as a ringtone, who knows, don't it? Uh, hey folks, how you all doing? I'm good, thank you, thank you for asking. You didn't ask, did you? You didn't ask, you didn't ask. I asked you, and you were like, you didn't, you didn't even say, how am I? Oh, well, 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 it's got to that, has it? It's got to that. Uh, hope you're all well. Uh, extra mile time, which is why I'm frantically looking around, trying to work out what I'm going to say. I've got some notes in front of me, don't worry, I'm not an idiot. But, <laughs> uh, so, I'll fit, oh, oh, uh, usual thing, obviously, extra mile. Uh, this is the improvised bit, the kind of bit where I fill you in on the case that you've just heard. Um, <coughs> uh, so for anyone new, it's all unscripted, unedited, no music, no sounds. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think I've edited any. Oh, the only thing I did edit out, I edited out something last week, only because I realised I cocked up slightly, was I said uh, I something about that I just, uh, I've just wrapped up a mug, which was for someone's present, and I was about to post it off, and then I realised that I'd actually said the person's name of who the present was for, and then I realised that that episode of Extra Mile was going out prior to Christmas, which was a bit stupid. <coughs> Ooh, burp. So, um... So I cut that. That's the only thing I've cut out so far, only because I didn't want to ruin someone's Christmas. Uh, and I won't put it in here either, because I think this goes out just before Christmas. I'm not too sure. It's what is it? It's fourth today for me. Fourth. Fourth of December. You're probably listening to this at Christmas or over Christmas. This is the fourth of December for me. Right. OK. Uh, update on where I am. Uh, so obviously, you remember, I was in Burglar's Paradise for a bit, moored up there. And then I was going to move to Mugger's Paradise. Uh, I decided not to move more up in Mugger's Paradise. 
We call it Muggers Paradise. It's a part of East London where basically there's a lot of violent muggings. A lot. There's a lot every night by a little gang of little shitbags who have nothing better to do. are probably all going to be dead in their early 20s anyway, uh, having sniffed glue up their noses. Uh, so I didn't move up there, but I moved on a little bit further to another part that I like to refer to as Violent Assault Town. Uh, <laughs> there's lots of different pockets on the canal where you can moor up, and they all have their own... Oh, they're all nice in their own little way, but they all have their little crap bits as well. So I'm in Violent Assault Town. Ah, oh, joy. Joy, oh joy. Uh, and it's been piddling it down recently, so uh, there's water everywhere. Luckily, it's a nice clear day today. It's really nice. It's nice and peaceful. Um, I was... I'm moored up next to a, a, a very nice lady uh, who I accidentally disturbed the other night, uh, the other morning. I was moving the boat and she was in the middle of coitus. She was having she was having some sexy time. And uh, obviously I was moving my boat, rocking their boat. Their world was rocking, uh, but it was me that was rocking the boat. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of happen. You have to get used, you have to get to know your neighbours very well because obviously, hang on, my tea's about to go. Obviously, um, sometimes... If you appreciate it, I'm currently, oops, hang on, get the water in, I don't want to spill it on my toe. That is the thing, is when, when your boats are side by side, or breast to breast, as you like to call it, um, you have to get to know your neighbours relatively well, or you have to be kind of very polite and, you know, tolerant of each other. Because literally, like, I could open my window, or I could be looking out of my kitchen window doing my washing up. And staring directly into the face of my neighbour doing their washing up as well. Or if your bathrooms are back to back, you could be having a poo literally like a foot away from your neighbour having a poo. But in this case, my neighbour was having some sexy time. It's all good, you know, people some people deserve to have sex once in a lifetime. <sighs> Fuck's sake. Once in a lifetime, that would be a wish. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, so uh, uh, all very nice. So it, it, it's a uh, yeah. So uh, my neighbours were. It looked like they'd have got their engine on short a little while ago, and it looked like they were going to move off. And they're on the inside. I'm on the outside, so they have to. I have to move me in order for them to get out. And I was like, oh, middle of recording. I don't want to break the record. In order for them to move their boat, but they're, they're just putting on their engine to run it for some power. So. Oh. So I'm in Violent Assault Town. Uh, it's a nice clear day. Coot, there's a coot outside. He was a little bit noisy, but he's not too noisy. Uh, and uh, lots of aircraft flying over, which are noisy as well. <sighs> but I think I pulled off a, an okay episode. I quite think that should be should be a, should be a good one. Should be a good one. I think they've all been good and different so far. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've tried to make them all different because we're because we're not just dealing with fact we're also dealing with people's lives but also uh, but also uh, people's perspectives how they perceive their own themselves and other people that's what i'm trying to get across with this especially with reg and especially now we're really getting into tim's psyche as well this is what makes it interesting is is tim's psyche because uh, obviously there's two two liars and fantasies in the house there is actually a book out there called the two killers at tem rillington place where they try to say that spoilers switch off now if you want to spoilers they tried to say that tim uh was the uh was actually the murderer of beryl and someone has kind of done a book where they say yeah tim was definitely the murderer but it's tim wasn't 
let's just be honest, Tim wasn't. We, we'll just put that aside now. Anyway, so uh gear it up for christmas uh, obviously i've mentioned this is the 4th of december and you'll probably listen to this over christmas so by the time you listen to this i hopefully will be taking some days off that'd be lovely and my favorite part of the year i do this every year don't worry we will get to information about this episode soon um i'm about to get to my favorite part of the year which is so throughout the year what i do is i empty my wallet in my pocket of all the kind of small change and i put it in a big jar and i store it away and every day I kind of empty my pockets and do that. And then when it gets to um, a couple of days before Christmas or the, the last day I'm on my boat before I disappear, uh, what I do is I treat myself. So I get all that money and then I go to the supermarket and I go to the you know, coin star machines where you give like a percentage to charity. But it counts it all for you and it goes and then it goes, oh, you have 20 pounds, stuff like that. Um I've been doing that all year, and I've actually filled filled the pot that I normally fill and two other pots as well. So it might be a bit of a bumper Christmas, which is good. So what I do is I treat myself to something nice, like a nice big roast that I make and some cakes, obviously some fun fancies, uh, some booze. Oh, got to have some booze. Uh, and I'll probably have that. I might do that on the 22nd, I think, because I'm away on the 23rd. So, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be good. That'll be all good fun. Um... Obviously, as this is going to be kind of nearly a Christmas episode, I mean, it's very festive, isn't it? Murder, murder. Uh, Merry Christmas, if this is, uh, if you're having Christmas at the moment. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, I thought I'd say uh, a special message to all of those people, because I know a lot of you are probably sitting on your asses, uh, rubbing your bellies, going, oh, God, it's so stressful Christmas being around families. But I just wanted to say, uh, wish everyone a Merry Christmas to everyone who is working over Christmas because uh, obviously there's a lot of people uh, out there who are working their arse off and doing a great job uh, so uh, I used to work over Christmas I really didn't mind to be honest I've done it a lot uh, so Merry Christmas to uh, everyone who works for the police force uh, especially uh, especially police constable Arsenal Guinness if you're if you're working over Christmas and I suspect you probably are uh, I hope there's a couple of Guinnesses lined up for you so uh, Merry Christmas to all the uh, everyone in the emergency service, so police, fire, medical, all of the charities who are working over Christmas, uh, especially all the homeless charities as well who are working really hard over Christmas. Uh, everyone who works in transport, so all the people who keep the trains and the buses and the taxis all running over Christmas, people still do. Uh, and of course, podcasters. <laughs> Many of us all still working over Christmas. And retailers as well, retailers of course. So, so Merry Christmas to everyone who's working over Christmas uh, and and making sure that we're still going. I used to work in television, so I used to I used to work over Christmas. Uh, yeah, which I know it's not exactly the same as emergency services, but it's uh, it's still working. <laughs> uh, just to let you know, I've ordered some new mugs. Although by the time you read this, you won't be able to uh, order a mug in time for Christmas because Christmas will have gone. But don't forget, we've got Valentine's Day coming up. Uh, so you can uh, order mugs for whenever, birthdays or whatever, but Valentine's Day. If you're coming on a Murder Mile walk, which you can book onto on my website as well, um, you, you can order a Murder Mile mug and I'll deliver it to you on the walk as well. You can do that as well. There's a, a little link when you buy uh, tickets as well. Um, but if you've f- uh, forgotten to get a loved one a Christmas present, don't forget that you can go to the Murder Mile eShop, check the Murder Mile link for merch at the bottom of this thingy. Thingy? Uh, uh, extra Mile. I'm confusing myself now. Uh, and 
Uh, obviously, it's oh, burped again. Obviously, there's not enough time to buy mugs and cards and stuff like that because that time has gone. Sorry, um, unless you're really local to me and that depends where i am because i might not be where i normally am um you don't forget you can a uh, book uh by ebooks murder mile ebooks you can also get a i don't know why i'm rushing this or a murder mile voice cameo so you can get a part in an upcoming episode of murder mile so you can treat a loved one to that or treat yourself or they can become a, a patreon subscriber to murder mile and get all of the episodes early Whew, i rushed that uh i don't know why Hope you're enjoying these episodes. Hope you're enjoying the 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 accents. Uh, I I thought Tim would be a lot more difficult, but actually I've enjoyed being Tim. I've enjoyed being Reg. Reg is good fun. I, I, Reg does kind of take over the writing. It, it is a problem sometimes. Reg tried to take over this story again, and I had to rein him in. I had to remember it was Tim's story and push Reg aside again. He does dominate the story uh, in my head, um, but I enjoy being Tim. I enjoy playing his accent. Uh, uh, if you're wondering, hang on, that doesn't sound its n- normal shitty accent from me. It's not like my, my Jamaican or anything like that. Uh, that's because I did live in South Wales for about three years. So I'm kind, I'm kind of used to the, the, the rhythm and their way of speaking. So uh, it's not, not a great accent but that I did. But uh, I did a bit because I was based mostly around Cardiff. It, it's mostly a bit of Cardiff with a hit of, hint of Swansea in there. Um, Unfortunately, Tim doesn't say all the things that people in South Wales normally say. Like, in it. What's that do then? What's that do then? All right, bud. That's my way to get into Tim's accent. Is I sit here and I go, all right, bud. What's that do then? <laughs> That's the, the uh, South Wales thing, thing to say. Is It's an all-purpose phrase. It doesn't really mean a lot. It doesn't. It's, what's that do then? It's, what's that do then? But it doesn't mean what does that do or what's that about. It's kind of a general statement. It's kind of questioning. It's 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 one of those weird phrases that really doesn't mean what it what it means, but it also does mean what it means. It's very weird. Uh, but the one thing that everyone, whenever people do a really awful Welsh accent, uh, hello, my name I my name is uh, Ellen. I am Welsh. One of those crappy Welsh accents that don't exist. People always say that Welsh people say there's lovely, right? I've lived on the border of Wales for like 20 years and I lived in uh, South Wales for three years, right? And never once in my life did I hear anyone, any Welsh person go, this lovely. Because people, Welsh people don't say it. I heard one lady once say it. She was Welsh and she was taking the piss and that was it. But I've never heard anyone say that. Uh, so just so you know, uh, right. What have I written here? Story. So I'm listening to my neighbour exiting their boat. I hope they're not moving now. Uh, I don't know why I've written that. Okay, I'm going to go through some details in this story that I can kind of clarify a little bit more uh, that are often confused in different retellings of this story. So Tim's literacy. Let's Let's nail this down now. Often it is said that Tim is entirely illiterate. Um... Uh, I think in the film they mention that, and even in one of Tim's statements, he says, he says, I can't read and write. Um, it's not entirely true. So, as we know, uh, Tim did, uh, Tim was always slightly slow-witted. He suffered an injury of his foot when, at an early age. He got TB, spent a lot of time not in school. Uh, his IQ was assessed 
in late 1949, so when he was arrested and being in the order, it was around 65 to 75, which in those days would put him in a kind of a borderline category of what they call uh, mental retardation. I don't think we use that phrase anymore. He was assessed when he was a child, and it was much lower than that. Um, <coughs> but he did have difficulty reading, but he would read uh, comic books. So he read comic books. Obviously, they had uh, the text in there as well. But let's not forget, Tim was a lorry driver. So uh, Tim would have had to be, been able to read, firstly read maps, look at manifests, read read addresses, read directions. So, you know, he wasn't entirely illiterate. He wasn't the kind of guy who would just like, you show him something he couldn't read it and he'd put a big X. He could sign his name. He could read and write. He just was not very good at it. He was a very, very slow reader. So hence, he just he wouldn't read and write unless he really had to. So that's just to clarify that. Uh, I think quite a lot, lot of times he would play up to the fact that he couldn't read and write. Uh, obviously, in this story as well, we have that uh, when Tim, Tim decides to escape, I'm going to have a slurp of tea. I'm moving away from the microphone. Oh, a slurp of tea. Lovely. Uh, obviously, when Tim goes to Wales, obviously, he, he, he doesn't know where to go um, uh, when he's got rid of Beryl. Uh, so he needs to disappear. He knows he can't go to his mum's. Obviously, his dad doesn't exist anymore because his dad, Daniel Evans, buggered off years ago. So he decides to go and visit his auntie and uncle, uh, Cornelius and Violet Lynch, at 93 Mount Pleasant in Merthyr Vale. As you know, just near Merthyr Vale, because this is confusing. It's not in Merthyr Vale, it's near Merthyr Vale. There's basically three vil villages together, which is Mount Pleasant, Merthyr Vale and Abervale. And they're three small villages around... Uh, the Merthyr Colliery, which is around the river, which is uh, flanking the River Taff. So it's actually three villages together, but people confuse it and say 93 Mount Pleasant, which is the name of the road and the village next to Merthyr Vale, not in Merthyr Vale. It's very confusing. So uh, Tim went to stay with his uh, Uncle Cornelius and Auntie Violet Lynch at 93 Mount Pleasant. That's where, where, when he disappeared to. So that was on the morning of the 15th of November at 6.40 a.m. Interestingly, he hadn't seen them for about nine years. So when he turned up at the door, they were like, what are you doing here? This is like a bit of a shock. Lovely to see him, but what is he doing? And he actually said to them that uh, he was on business there with his boss and that their Vauxhall 16 car had broken down outside Cardiff Station. This was all lies. He'd taken the train there. They never saw his boss. And every time they'd speak to him and say uh because he was there for two weeks they were like oh, when's the car going to be fixed and they were like he was like oh do you know uh it's, they say it's going to be another couple of days and he kept dragging this out and dragging this out and really not getting his details right um while they were there tim and uncle cornelius also known as uncle con that's who uh, uncle con and auntie vi tim went with uncle con i haven't put this in the story because it slows it down uh but went to the mount pleasant hotel with Tim to have a drink. Uh, as Tim pulled out his wallet out of his pocket, out came Beryl's gold ring. Uncle Con said, is that Beryl's? And Tim said, no, I found it in Gloucester when uh, when I was going for a slash. Obviously, that's uh, colloquialism for having a wee-wee. Um, uh, but uh, a couple of days later, so 10 days after he arrived, this would have been uh, just before he went to the police, uh, police station, he went to Samuels the Jewellers in Merthyrvale High Street and sold it. I had written down how much he sold it for. I think it was only about eight shillings, I believe. I've got it written somewhere. 
big noisy boat about to go past so everything might get noisy um and although i said i said on here that <coughs> um when uh after he'd cleared out the flat and he sold all the stuff tim left tenrillington place never to return uh, he did actually return uh tim returned to tenrillington place it was a that is really noisy must be a construction boat let me have a look for you i'll, I'll describe it as it goes past no no it's a little uh it's a uh, it's a tiny little push boat it's, it's basically a tugboat that basically pushes the big it's tiny oh it's really noisy it's tiny it's probably only about eight feet long it's like a little stubby boat and they're tiny but they're really powerful and they're really great for pulling like pulling and pushing huge dredging barges they're great to watch they are i watched one of them pushing a, a bridge down the canal so it, it was floating this these uh it was a five-part bridge and it was probably probably about 150 feet long and probably about 30 feet wide and this tiny little boat was steering all of that it was fantastic to watch oh um anyway so yeah tim returned to Tellington place probably around it was around the 20th or 21st he came back for about a day or two uh to see what was going on with uh obviously with geraldine because he was concerned about geraldine and other things like that and then he went back to mirthervale didn't put that in the story because it doesn't really add anything to it uh so obviously tim was charged uh with the murder oh sorry he was told about his wife's <coughs> uh wife and, and child's death uh and on uh, 9:45 p.m on the 2nd of december 1945 in notting hill police station he made that confession uh when he was asked uh was he responsible he simply replied yes uh in his mind he was responsible Although it's often taken that he said he's, you know, uh, we take that as, did you commit the murders? When the police said, uh, were you responsible? In Tim's mind, he was responsible because he organised, you know, he moved them into Ten Rillington Place. He got to know the Christies, as did Beryl. Uh, you know, he, he said yes to the abortion. That's where it all started. So in his mind, he's entirely responsible for that, even though he didn't commit the murders. Um uh, so obviously we got that statement here he, he would appeared at Lo uh, west london magistrates court the next day he remained in custody until the 15th of december and was granted legal aid um if you fancy i've got tim's full statement here um this is the second statement so this is the one he made at 9 10 p.m on uh wednesday the 30th this was the one where he goes um I'm going to read the first but anyway but this way when he admits to procuring an abortion and reg's involvement obviously i won't, won't read the th eh? can't speak i won't read the third statement until next week because obviously that's key to the story but i'll read his statement i'm not going to do his voice because uh the only thing that is not true about the statement no, i can't be asked uh the so tim's statement is the only thing that's not true in the statement i made to you this afternoon is the part about meeting the man in the cafe and disposing of my wife's body it's fascinating doing a doing a podcast has really ironed out my dyslexia i can actually read uh i guess it's just practice isn't it um all the rest is true uh it is me stumbling though uh, <laughs> uh as i was coming home from work one night that would be about a week before my wife died reg christie who lived on the ground floor flat approached me and said i'd like to have a chat with you about your wife taking these pills i know why she's take what she's taken them for she's trying to get rid of this baby 
If you or your wife had come to me in the first place, I could have done it without any risk. I turned round and said, well, I didn't think you knew anything about medical stuff. So he told me he was training... Whoop, burps. Obviously, he didn't burp. Oh, dear, veggie sausages. Um, so he told me he was training as a doctor before the war. Then he started showing me books and things on medical. I was just as wise because I couldn't understand a word of it as I can't read or write. Then he told me that the stuff he used, one out of every ten women, one out of every, every ten die from it. I told him I was not interested. I said goodnight and went upstairs. When I got in, my wife said she'd been talking to Christy about it and asked me if, if he had spoken to me. I said yes. I turned round and told her I did not want anything to do with it. She told me to mind my own business and that she intended to get rid of it and she trusted Mr Christie. She, she said he could do the job without any trouble. On the Monday evening, so that would have been the 7th, uh, I came home from work and my wife said that Mr Christie had made arrangements for the first thing Tuesday morning, that's the 8th. Uh, I didn't argue with her, I just washed, changed and went to the KPH until 10pm. I came home and had supper and went to bed. She wanted to start an argument, but I was having none of it. Just after six, I got up the following morning uh, to go to work. My wife got up with me. I had a cup of tea and a smoke, and she told me, and she told me, on your way down, tell Mr. Christie. Oh no, sorry. Uh, I had a cup of tea and a smoke, and I told her, on my way down, tell Mr. Christie that everything is all right. If you don't, I'll go down and tell him myself. Oh, sorry, I was reading ahead then. Uh, so, uh, so, so I went down the stairs. He came out to meet me, and I said everything is all right. And I went to work. So I was, I was reading instead of talking to you. <laughs> Getting too engrossed in there. Uh, when I came home in the evening, uh, he was waiting for me at the bottom of the stairs. He said, "Go on upstairs, and I'll come behind you." When I lit the gas in the kitchen, he said, "It's bad news. It didn't work." I asked him where she was. He said, "Lying on the bed in the bedroom." Uh, then I so I was listening, also listening to the boat because they've just started their engine next door. Uh, then I asked him uh, where the baby was. He said the baby's in the cot. So I went in the bedroom. I lit the gas and saw the curtains had been drawn. I looked at my wife and saw she had been covered with an eiderdown. I pulled down the eiderdown to have a look at her. I could see that she was dead, uh, and that she'd been bleeding from the mouth and nose. She had a black skirt on and a checked blouse and a kind of light blue jacket. Christy was in the kitchen. I went over, picked up the baby. In the meanwhile, Mr. Christie had lit a fire, and he said, "I'll speak to you after the feed the babe after you feed the baby." So I made the baby some tea and a boiled egg for her, then changed the baby and put her in front of the fire. Then I asked him how long my wife had been dead. He said since about three o'clock, which is incorrect, because uh, it would have been about half ten, eleven. But why? Why would lie about that? I don't know. Uh, and then he told told me why my my wife's stomach had. <coughs> My wife's stomach had been septic poisoned. He said another day and she'd have got, had to go to hospital. I then asked him what had been done and he wouldn't tell me. He then told me to stop in the kitchen and he closed the door and went out. He came back about a quarter of an hour later and told me he had forced the door of Mr Kitchener's flat, that's on the first floor, and I put my wife in there. I asked him what he intended to do with that. He said, I'll dispose of it down the drain. He then said, you better go to bed and leave the rest to me. 
he said get up and go to work as usual in the morning and uh he'll he'll see about getting someone to look after the baby in a later statement tim admits that he helped as in this story here the one we've just done he admits that he uh had to help mr christie move the body downstairs because christie couldn't do it himself but he didn't do it in this statement he changes his story quite a lot throughout cool that's really noisy um I told him that it was foolish to try and dispose of the body and he said well that's the only thing I can do otherwise I'll get into trouble with the police. He then left me. Before I went to bed I took the eider down and the blanket off the bed and put them in the cupboard. Oh dear. Another noisy boat going past. Very noisy. Very noisy indeed. Uh, oh where did I get to? I've just... Oh! 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 Okay, uh, I got up in the next morning about six o'clock. I made myself a cup of tea and made the baby some breakfast and fed her and changed her and put her back in the cot. Christy told me that he was going to look after the baby that day, so I went to work. I saw Christy before I went and he told me that he would slip up and feed the baby during the day. I wanted to take the baby to my mother's the night before, but he said not to do it as it would cause suspicion straight away. He also told me that he knew a young couple in East Acton who would look after the baby and he would go over and see them. See, I've used quite a lot of this in the story we've just had because it's nice to hear Tim's original words, although I have, cut, as you can tell, I have cut it down a lot. Uh, when I came home from work that Wednesday night at about five or six o'clock, uh, Christy told me that the young couple from East Acton would be in on Thursday to take the baby. I fed the baby that night and was playing with her by the fire when Christy came in. He said, in the morning, when you get up, feed the baby and dress her, then put her back in the cot. The people will arrive just after nine in the morning to fetch her. He said, I've told them to knock, th I've told them to knock three times and I'll let them in. He also told me to pack some clothes for the baby. See, that detail is really odd about knocking three times. Uh, I didn't put that in as well. It just... This is more waffle from uh, Christy. Uh, I did all that in the morning before work. I saw him as I was going out in the morning at about half past six and told him what I had done. At about half past six in the evening, I came home. I went upstairs and as I got in the kitchen, he came up behind me. He told me that the couple had called and had took the baby with them uh, and to pack the rest of her things. And and he had, a, uh, he had a case and would take them over to East Acton with a pram and a chair later in the week. I then asked him how did he dispose of my wife's body. He said, I put her down the drains. That's all he said to me and then he went downstairs. Obviously, by this point, uh, Beryl is in the wash house, as is Geraldine. Um, interestingly, um, it's a communal wash house, as I, as I mentioned quite a few times before. So Mr Kitchener wouldn't have been using it because he was in hospital by that point. But uh, Ethel was using it uh, and she didn't notice anything at all. Uh, and Tim probably would have as well at some point he probably would have used it as well um, later that evening I went round to my mother's that's Mrs Thomasina Probert at uh, 11 St Mark's Road um, she asked where the barrel and, barrel and the baby was I told her they had gone away on holiday when I left my mother's place that night I went to the KPH pub for a drink why not go to the pub uh, I didn't go to work on Friday as I had finished on the Thursday. That evening, Christy said, uh, Note, the best thing you can do is sell all your furniture and get out of London somewhere. I said, All right. 
On the Friday, I went to see a man in Portobello Road, that's uh, that's uh, Robert Hooker, uh, about selling my furniture. Uh, he came down Friday afternoon and said it was worth about 40 quid. I told him he would pick it up. Uh, he told me he'd pick it up the following Monday, which he did. That was just before lunch. Uh, on Friday, I went to the pictures and the pub and then went home to sleep. On Saturday, I did the same thing. On Sunday, I went to see the, a rag dealer. I met him outside a cafe in Labrook Grove. That's where he lives. I told him uh, if he came down to my place on the Monday, there would be quite a lot of rags for him. I got up about six o'clock on the Monday morning, ripped up all my wife's clothes and the eider down and cut up the blanket. The man came at around nine o'clock. Uh, he took about two sacks full. I didn't take nothing from him for them. Good use of English there. Uh, about three o'clock, uh, about three o'clock, the van came. It was actually just before lunch. Uh, they cleared all the furniture out uh, and the bedclothes and the lino and the furniture. The man paid me forty pounds, and I, and I which I signed for. Interestingly. Um, most of Tim's furniture was still on HP. It was on higher purchase. It was uh, the rent for it was being paid by his mum. So he'd actually sold the furniture and he didn't own it. But he, he actually said to the the the, uh, the man that he he actually owned it in Cardiff and then he bought it over here. So uh, so um, he he sold furniture which wasn't even his. Uh, another illegal legal action. Um, the only things left in the house was the vases, a clock, some dis- dishes. A saucepan, a bucket, and a case with the baby's clothes, her pram, and a small chair. Christy had all that stuff. He asked me where I was going to go, and I said I didn't know. And then I got my case up to Paddington, left it at the left luggage department until about half past twelve that evening. I went to the pictures, and then a pub, and then went to Paddington again and picked up my case about half past twelve and caught the five to one train to Cardiff. I got to Merthyrvale about twenty to seven in the morning. I went to ninety three Mount Pleasant. I've been there ever since. Um, oh yeah, no, I've made a note here. He returned on the twenty-third. So that was all of Tim. That was Tim's second statement. Uh, obviously, Tim didn't write that. He kind of dictated it to the police. Hence, a lot of these statements tend to be a bit. They tend to be a bit bitty. Uh, not bitty as in Little Britain. Bitty. Uh, bit, bitty as in kind of you know fragmentary. But um, yeah, it, it kind of. It tells us everything we need to know about Tim at that point. But obviously we're going to learn a lot more next week. Because next week is part six. Uh, so this will be... Oh, stretch! Ooh. This will be uh, the trial of Timothy Evans. So this is going to be a, a really key scene. Obviously in most depictions of this, they kind of skim over a lot of details on here. But... Uh, this is going to be an important one to learn a lot more about Timothy Evans, learn a lot more about Christie, uh, learn a lot more about another character who has been mentioned several times, but doesn't. But she, she kind of stays in Reggie's shadow. So we'll learn a lot more about her on this one. Uh, and uh, yeah, there'll be uh, an interesting resolution, and then we all then the other murders will happen. Ooh, exciting! So <coughs> that would. <coughs> Oh dear, I haven't had any biscuits. Pack of biscuits, I haven't eaten a biscuit. I was so busy firing through that. So, that was part six. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, have yourself a good Christmas. Or obviously if you're listening to this in, in, in months time, then have a good Valentine's Day or birthday or summer. 
makes no difference really does it uh so enjoy yourself have fun and i'll catch you all soon uh lots of love tatty bye 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 imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.